You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. So, when I was eight years old, uh, I remember playing with this other boy in my neighborhood, and we were kind of just exploring on our, bo- on our block. It was an early fall day like today. Uh, it had been raining all morning. Uh, but the sun had finally come out, so we were eager to get outside and go play. And so we were exploring, and in the 90s, eight-year-olds were allowed to go explore and play by themselves. It's kind of a weird concept, but that's what we were doing. Maybe it was a bad idea after all, because we came upon this house that was being built, and um, or maybe remodeled or something, I can't quite remember. But for some reason that, that I can't remember or figure out, we we decided that we really wanted to get onto the front deck of this house, uh, because we wanted to play on it. Um, the only problem was that the front yard was basically this big mud pit, this big, like, deep, wet mud due to the fact that it had been raining and that they didn't have sod on the house yet because they were just building it, right? So it was just this, this muddy pit, basically. And so, but we really wanted to get onto the deck. So to overcome this obstacle, we, we found a couple two-by-fours that were lying in the construction site, and we, and we, 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 we laid them across the, the, the muddy yard to act like a bridge so that we could get across, right? And we thought that was pretty clever. Um, eight-year-olds, you know, we, we think we're super clever. So once the boards were laid down, my friend went first. He started walking across it. He's balancing, right? And then I, fo- and I followed him. We're walking across these boards. Everything's going well. First couple of steps. But then, of course, all of a sudden, the boards just started to sink into the mud. And, and I remember thinking, oh, no. Like, what's going on? And, and before I knew it, my, my right foot, which was in front, was just, co- was completely covered in mud. Just, it happened so quick, I couldn't even react. Uh, but it was worse for my friend, who at the moment I realized my foot was in the mud, he slipped and just fell right into the mud, instantly covered in the muck. And so, so I tried to reach, reach out and help him and like grab him as he was falling, but that put me off balance. And so I adjusted, and my left foot fell into the mud, because I had to counterbalance. And, Another mistake, because as I tried to, to move, my foot was stuck in the mud. Like, it was just suctioned in there. You, you, some of you have probably experienced that when your foot's just stuck in the mud. And so, uh, instinctively, I just pulled really hard, and my, my foot came out of my shoe. And so, I'm standing in the mud, and I remember, uh, you know, my sock, right? And, and, and I remember just contemplating as an eight-year-old, um, you know, all my life's decisions that have, that have led up to this moment. And, and as I was doing that, of course, the inevitable happened, and I slipped, and I was in the mud as well, covered. That's four weeks in a row that I got Cheryl to laugh. <laughs> um, and as I was laying there, I thought, I thought to myself, you know, my life, my life is over. My life is over. My mom's going to kill me. I remember thinking that. And, and that thought was reinforced when I looked up and I noticed across the street this, this lady had, was sitting on her front step, this other mom, and, and I guess she'd come out to enjoy the show. And she had her two kids sitting with her. And I remember her saying to her kids, See, kids, this is why we don't play in the mud. And um, I'm glad I could help her with, with her kids' life decisions. Anyways, we ended up army crawling through the mud, you know, me with my one shoe in, in, in my hand, right? And then, and then we both got to the sidewalk, we got up and just kind of looked at each other and we just both started heading our separate ways toward our homes. 
like dead men walking to the gallows, right? We're covered in thick mud, shivering in the cold air of autumn, carrying our shame and embarrassment, and, and mostly just dreading, just dreading the reaction of our moms. The walk home uh, felt like an eternity for me, and, and it was worse than I thought. When I got home, as soon as my mom saw me, um, completely filthy, covered in mud, new, new, new school clothes basically ruined, she just yelled at me, she, she threw me out of the house, and she disowned me right then and there. I'm glad that you laughed because I'm just kidding. Most of you know my mom, right? There she is right there. Everyone look at her and embarrass her. Um, well, so you know my mom, she wouldn't do that, right? She wouldn't disown me uh, for ruining my school clothes and getting stuck in the mud. But that's my point. If she wouldn't do that, then why do we, we think so often that that's how God's going to respond to us? Right? When, why, why do we so often feel like the moment that, that God opens the door and, and sees us standing there, heads hanging in shame, covered in our, our muck, that, that, that we're, that, that we're going to get it? Or that he's going to be disappointed in us and, and lash out at us or disown us or throw us out of his presence. Right? Like, 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 like he's, he's the world's angry principal just waiting in his office to, to suspend us. Right? Or, or like a bitter dad who's, who's, who's always ashamed of us and never proud of us. Or, or like an irritable boss who, who intimidates and threatens to get what he wants. Or like the photo radar guy, right? Whose only purpose is to catch us and then give us a ticket. Right? That's how we think of, think of God so often. And as Jeremy Treat writes, many people believe God's a grumpy old man who has to get his way. And that when he doesn't, he will shame, guilt, and scare people to get them in line. Although most wouldn't say it out loud, deep down, even many believers think of God as the God who is out to get me. That he is waiting for us to mess up so he can meet his divine quota for punishing sin. And perhaps this comes from a particular teaching or from a bad experience with a church or a Christian. But either way, this is how many functionally view God. So let me ask, is that how we view God? Or better yet, how do, how do we think God is viewing us? How do we think God is looking at us? And I remember walking, as, as I walked home that day, right, I was, I was imagining all the ways that my mom would punish me and yell at me. But truth be told, the opposite actually occurred. She was, she was definitely surprised and shocked and a little disappointed, I'm sure, right? I just wrecked my school clothes. But mostly, I remember her motherly compassion in that moment as she immediately, right at the front door, just removed my dirty clothes, brought me in out of the cold, and then ran me a hot bath. And let me tell you, best bath ever. <laughs> but it, but is, is that the image that we get when we think of the way God sees his, his dirty, sinful children? A God of compassion, of grace, of mercy? It should be. It should be, right? And, and in fact, Jesus, in one of his most famous parables, which we're going to go through in a bit, he actually tells us that it's better than that. It's even better than that. In fact, he tells us that the moment we turn to God, even with all our sin and with our shame and our dirt and our regrets, he not only welcomes us into his arms, but he gives us clean new clothes. Uh, and, and, and even more than that, he throws a party. He throws a party in our honor. He rejoices over us. 
And I think this concept can be hard for us to grasp sometimes, especially for those of us that feel uh, unworthy or like we're unlovable, or for those of us who feel like God is a, a staunch um, pastor or something, you know, like a staunch boring pastor. Um, we get that image in our mind. You know, it's hard for us to think, oh, God rejoices over us. God throws a party for us. But he does. He rejoices over you. Each one of you. In fact, he sings over us. He sings over us. Listen to the heart of God for his people in this verse. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior bringing victory. He will create calm with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He'll rejoice over you with singing. I think we, we tend to think that our times of worship, like we had worship this morning, it was great. Ben did an awesome job. Thank you. Yeah. But I think we, we tend to think our worship's one-sided, right? Um, like, like we're just singing to God, but that's certainly not the way that it's going. In fact, the reason we sing to God is because he's already singing over us. That's the heart and joy of God on display. A God who's not only for us, but a God who unabashedly rejoices over us. And we're going we're gonna to dig into that a little deeper as we go through Luke 15, 11 to 32. So if you want to turn with me there. All right, Luke 15, 11 to 32. Remember, he's talking to Pharisees who were, um, you know, accusing him and, and, uh, of eating with sinners. Okay, so this is how he responds to them. Luke 15, 11 to 32. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. And when he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in the country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. Is Jesus saying that we can have music and dancing? Yes, he is. He, <laughs> twice. he, called, anyways, he, he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. And the servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. 
But his father came out and begged him. And he answered his father, Look, I have served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I love that last line when the the father says, we had to celebrate. Like there was no other option in this scenario. We had to celebrate. He was lost and is found. He's dead and is alive. It's time to party, right? That's, That's the only option. This is the affection of God for us. Let's go, let's go through it a little bit more closely, though. Okay, so we have this, this younger son. He's this Jew, Jewish man, right? He, he takes his share of the family inheritance, and the father just gives it to him. And then he pieces out, right? He ditches his father. He ditches his family business. And this is one of the greatest insults of the time, of the day, right? Not, not only an insult to his father, but also to the community that was there. Um, he's basically shaming the family, right? But he doesn't care, right? He's got his money. He's never coming back. They're dead to him. He's, he's dead to them. And so he takes it all, and then he, and then he moves to some ritzy neighborhood in some, some Gentile country, right, some non-Jewish country, and he starts living the high life, right, fine wines, expensive clothes, prostitutes, parties. He's living it up. He's loving the freedom of, of getting to do whatever he wants on his own, right, which, by the way, is our culture's perceived definition of happiness, autonomy. And uh, as Joshua Ryan Butler writes, about the younger son, he says, this is our, our story. This is our story. We want to rule the world without God. We want to live our lives in independence rather than communion. We snatched the billions and bolted for the distant land, grabbing what we could to live without them. But beyond the horizon lies destruction. We have squandered dad's generosity on ourselves. So we're the younger son in this story, okay? We, we took our inheritance and we ran from the father. That's, that's mankind, basically. But of course, rock bottom comes swiftly, right? And one day it's the high life, and the next day the younger son's credit card bounces, and and there's nothing left in his bank account, and he's left with nothing, right? No food, there's poverty in the land, he's got nothing. So he's forced to take a job for a Gentile pig farmer. And I'm not sure if there's anything worse than for a Jewish man to be working on a pig farm. That's incredibly not kosher, right? But that's all he has going for him. So he has little money, whatever little money he's getting paid there. He has no food. In fact, he's, he's craving the food that they're feeding to the pigs. That's how hungry he is. He has no friends. He has no family. And I'm sure that he smells like the pigs. I remember being a, uh, my friend at a pig farm and, and he just opened the door to where the pigs were and closed it. And then I smelled like pigs for like two days. It was gross. That smell does not go away. Anyways, this guy, he's a total disgrace. A total disgrace. It's pretty much sunk in the lowest you could go. His sin and selfishness have left him miring in the mud of a pig pen. And so his only option after that, after he's come to his senses, it says, is to, to grovel back to his dad. To see if his dad will give him a job. Because he thinks, well, even the servants get paid and have more food than he has. 
And so we need to understand, though, that in those days, returning home after something like this, something like he did, that was unheard of. That was unheard of. He could legally get stoned to death for coming home after shaming his family like that. What he did was socially and religiously uncool, right? And I bet the Pharisees that are listening to Jesus' parable up to this point were probably expecting the story to end exactly that way. And then the son returned home and they stoned him to death, the end. And all the Pharisees were like, yeah, that's good. But the younger son's got no other options, right? He has to take that risk. And he heads home. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's guilt-ridden. He's dirty. But he's, he's, he's ready to apologize, right? He's, he's got that repentant, humble attitude because he's sunken the lowest he can go just in the hopes of getting a sliver of forgiveness from his dad, right? Just, just enough that maybe his dad will let him get a job. Maybe as the lowest, the lowest hired hand. Maybe as the lowest servant even. He's probably, on his way home, he's probably thinking about all the ways too that, it, that his dad's going to punish him or, or discipline him. But this is when the beautifully unthinkable thing happens. Verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. And his father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. Last week we talked about how, how God pursues us, right? He pursues us relent, relentlessly. I'm glad we sang that song, Your Love is Relentless. That's, that's, that's God just chasing after us. Chasing after us, chasing after us, right? And we see that image on display here as the father runs toward his son. Even, even though he's a long way off, he's, he sees him in the horizon. He's running towards him. In other words, the father was waiting for him. The, the, the father was watching for him, looking out for his return, hoping and longing for it. And as soon as it happened, he, he didn't hesitate. He's filled with compassion and he just ran out to meet his son. And even though his son probably smelled like pig excrement and, and was covered in mud and wore, wore, wore ragged clothes, he hugged him and he kissed him. It didn't matter what condition the son was in. He loved him. But it gets better than that because then his compassion and love turns to rejoicing. Right? Almost, and almost as if he's ignoring his son's attempt to repent. His son's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he's like, he's like shut up. Um, servant, gra- 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 immediately get some, my son new clothes and get him some sandals and, and get, put a ring on his finger and bring him into the, the house. And then he orders the servant to kill the fattened calf, which is not a cheap thing. Right? That's his staple, the, the fattened calf. Right? All, all that money he's going to make that year, just kill it, kill it right then and there because we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a party. We're going to have feasting and music and dancing and singing because his son is home once again. He was dead to them, but is now alive. And just imagine how the, the younger son is feeling at that moment. Just imagine, you know, if it was me, if I was that younger son, I'd, I'd just be in a state of shock and awe. Like, this is not what I expected to happen, right? Like, and and. I don't deserve this. You're throwing, wait, you're throwing a party for me? You're putting a ring on my finger? I don't, I don't deserve any of this. And at the same time, I, though I'd be filled with such relief and comfort and, and joy, right, for not only being forgiven, but also welcomed back with open and affectionate arms. As the Lord says in Zephaniah, I will call me with my love and I will rejoice over you with singing. And here we see the father doing just that with his wayward son. Right? He welcomed the son, 
not with guilt, but forgiveness and compassion. He melted the son's anxiety and shame away in a single moment of love and joyful affection. And he stripped away any feelings of worthlessness by clothing him and sacrificing the fattened calf and throwing a feast and having a party in his honor. Is this how we imagine God receiving us when we turn to him? Is this the way we think that God sees us as children to delight in and rejoice over? Do you feel that you're worth rejoicing over? Well, God does. And he sings it. And he sings it. I've only, I've only been sung to a few times in my life. And there's something, there's something about it that can't be described, right? Someone could say something to you and it means, it means a lot. But when someone sings it to you, it just... You can't, you can't describe how that feels, right? And, and most of us probably only experience someone singing to us maybe on our birthday, right? The happy birthday song. I won't sing it. I won't make it. It's probably already in your heads anyways, now that I've just mentioned it. But even something as cheesy and, and awkward and, and off-key and normalized as the happy birthday song when it's being sung to you, um, even for that one minute, it certainly makes us feel valued, right? And, and, and loved and appreciated, even even it's such a cheesy thing. But when they're singing it to you, you just you just kind of feel you feel pretty nice, right? And so to know that the God of the universe sings over us, that's that's mind blowing. God rejoices and sings over me. Who am I? Who am I that you should love me and sing over me? But yet he does. And he does with such affection. Sam Storm writes, Zephaniah 3.17, a passage about God singing over us, has led me to a simple but startling conclusion. What makes life livable is enjoying the joy that comes from knowing one is enjoyed by God. I'll read that again so that we get it. What makes life livable is enjoying the joy that comes from knowing one is enjoyed by God. This in no way minimizes our responsibility to love God, but our love for God is a reflex of his love for us. He loved us first. God rejoices over us. He enjoys us. He loved us first. But still, I bet many of us, though, find this hard to grasp find this hard to accept, find this hard to receive, right? Because maybe as a result of different experiences in our life or circumstances or relationships in our past or in our present, I know some of us here are believing this lie that we're, that we're unlovable, that there's no way God could delight in you. For whatever reason, maybe you're feeling too small or too insignificant to be loved or, or too ugly or too fat or too skinny or not accomplished enough or too poor or too sinful or too dirty, too, too guilty, or maybe you're feeling unvalued because, because it seems like no one notices you. Maybe you're feeling untouchable or, or tarnished or too far gone because of something that you've done or because of something someone's done to you. 
Let's remember the younger son. He was too far gone, it seemed like, right? He was the lowest he could go. He was the, the dirtiest he could get in that, in that situation, emotionally, socially, spiritually. It was hopeless. And yet, the moment he set his face toward home, his father raised him up to the, the place of, the, of highest honor. Dirtiest he could get, yet the moment he turned his face towards home, his father lifted him up. Dr. Jack Deere, he puts it so simply when he says, Many in the church today are convinced God is angry with his people, but they have no idea how crazy he is about them. God's, God's crazy about you. Well, it's cheesy to say, but God is crazy about you. Even with all your imperfections, even with all your mistakes, God is crazy about you. He's not waiting to punish you. He's not waiting to shame you or guilt trip you into following him. He's waiting to run out, run out to you and, and hug you and kiss you and sing over you. Look at the end of book, the book of Revelation. What do we find at the end of the book of Revelation? We find a party, right? A party in the presence of God, drinking wine and eating with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what we find. So Genesis, you look at Genesis, what does it start with? It starts with mankind taking our inheritance and running from God, right? Running from God in shame. And Revelation ends with a party of victory and reconciliation. And God wants you at that party. He wants to throw a party in your name. He wants to sing over you. He desires it so much that Jesus, the Son of God, willingly paid the price for our sins, for our waywardness, for our rebellion, so that we could come into the party, so that by his blood we can be cleansed and washed clean of the muck, so that through Jesus, God can strip us of our rags, our muddy rags, and bring us into his house clothed in his glory and Jesus' righteousness, so that through his sacrifice we can feast and commune with God at his table. Because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, God is singing over us. Think of it like this. Right after Jesus was baptized, it says in Matthew 3.17, it says, And behold, a voice from heaven, God the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So when we repent and believe in the name of Jesus, when we turn towards home, that's how we turn towards home. We repent and believe in the name of Jesus. This is what happens. That God sees us the same way he sees his son. In other words, that same loving voice from heaven sings the same declaration over us, over each of you. This is my child with whom I am well pleased. Make no mistake. God delights in you. Yes, you. Sam Storm writes again, God loves us with all our faults and failures, with all the secret sins no one knows about. In fact, he rejoices over us so much that he breaks out in inexpressible joy and song as he thinks about us. Sometimes I think we get this backwards, though. 
We think that God and his holiness is, is allergic to our sin, right? Like, like he can't be around us, like he's going to break out in hives if he's around us, or he's just, he's just put off because we're, because we're so dirty. He's just put off by us. But that way of thinking, is, it gives off the wrong impression, right? It makes us run and hide from God like Adam and Eve did. Instead of turning to him for help and repentance. And as Butler writes again, God's not worried that he'll be affected by our sin. Right? He's an incorruptible God. He will not be affected by our sin. He's worried that we will. Because sin can't stand to be in the presence of God. See, God desires to be with us. As we talked about last week, again, he's chasing after us, right? He's coming into our mess time and time again. Our sin doesn't stop him from loving us and being with us. Rather, it's our sin that can't stand to be around God. Like a vampire to sunlight, right? Our sin, our sin screeches and scrambles for the shadows, keeps us in the darkness. It blinds us and tells us that God's angry with us, that he can never forgive us, that we don't belong in the light. But we do. We do belong in the, in the light. We're children of the day, children of the light. We no longer belong in the darkness. Which is why it's good news for us that, that God's love isn't based on how good, good we are or how bad we are at all. It's not based on our actions at all. As the older brother in the parable learned, right? He's saying, he says to his father, you know, I've been, I've been working for you nonstop, nonstop, but you've, you haven't given me anything. And the father's like, I've always loved you, no matter what. God's love for us isn't based on, on the bad things we've done or the good things we've done. God's love for us is based on who God is. Again, the younger son did nothing to earn God's favor or the father's love, right? In fact, everything that the, son, the younger son did should have made the father hate him. But yeah, basically the moment he turned his face toward home, the father's love overwhelmed him with visible and overwhelming joy, forgetting everything that the son had did. His, his past mattered little. That didn't matter anymore. What mattered, what brought the father joy, was that he was home. And it's, and it's with that same joy set before him that Jesus went to the cross. That joy of knowing that through his perfect sacrifice, the wayward can return home. That the lost will be found, that the old will be made new, that the dead will be made alive, that God will be glorified. That joy of knowing that God could finally throw us that, that party that he's been organizing and longing for, even from the moment we left and rebelled against him. So yes, God is for us. In fact, he sings over us. He sings over us. So how do we respond to a God who rejoices and sings over us? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 21, when he says, Enter in to the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. Enjoy the joy of knowing that God rejoices over us. His joy for us is meant to fill us with an overwhelming joy for him. 
And so I'm going to close there. And as we move into taking communion this morning, let us enter into his joy as we do it. And as we respond with worship, let us do so knowing that we're actually joining in the chorus with God who first sang and is still singing over us.